Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 40 today. I know, 27 verses in 23 minutes. We can do, just kidding. You, I, I don't think I give it my sermon in 23 minutes. I need a bigger box than that. Um, so we're going to be in the second half of 1 Corinthians 14 today. Um, really quickly, Kelly, thank you so much for introing both the His Hands ministry and the Abide Journal. Um, it's just, just an awesome thing. Uh, the elders, we pray for everybody every week and in the early fall, one of the things that we felt the leading to do was to establish this service ministry that we would be able to partner together as a church, that we would intentionally use the gifts and talents and the resources God gives us to serve each other, to lift each other up, and then also to serve those in the community. And so for those of you who have already put your name in the basket with your talent and your contact information, thank you. For those of you who will do that over the coming weeks, we really appreciate it. And just like Kelly said, you might not feel like you have the talent that's needed, uh, but sometimes the best talent is just showing up and giving what you have. And so thank you so much for, for doing that. Also, I just wanted to highlight the Abide Journal. Um, first of all, there's been uh, somebody who's underwritten like half the cost. So for you who do not can't afford, you know, four bucks or five bucks or whatever it is to throw that in, or you don't have it this week, take one anyways, that's okay. We're just trying to defray printing costs a little bit, and so uh, we're just saying, hey, if you can do this, do that. The other thing is that um, I, I feel, you know, we, we do a, a spiritual growth thing as a church every spring. I don't know if you've noticed that. We've done 40 days of prayer in the past, and this year as we were approaching that, and I was getting ready to plan it out and get it together, I felt like the Lord saying, do something different. Create, create a journal uh, that's about spiritual growth. And then as I prayed for that further, I felt uh, leading towards John 15. How many of you guys know the John 15 chapter? It's really, it's kind of a famous chapter for people who are students of the Bible. And in it, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. No, so not divine, the vine. And he says that unless if you abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. In fact, he even says, apart from me, you will do nothing. And, and I, this year as I was reading that, I realized that that's not like, um, it's not a descriptor. It's, uh, it's an absolute truth. So if you as a Christian are not abiding in Christ, what are you doing spiritually? Nothing. Nothing. It's like you're spinning your wheels. You're not going anywhere. And, and so the heart of this is that we as a church family would be abiding in Christ uh, together. Um, I've, uh, in putting it together, at the front of each week, there are some invitations to engage in some practices or exercises that might take you a little bit out of your comfort zone, push you to think a little bit more deeply, and engage in your spiritual life with Christ in new ways. I would encourage you to choose a couple of those and try them throughout the week, but low-key, no pressure. You can't mess these up, okay? Like, if, if you're not, if you, like, I'm not doing it right. It's okay. You're, you're trying, right? It's like spiritual t-ball, these exercises, and we all need to do spiritual t-ball occasionally. Focus on the basics. Uh, did you know that MLB players hit the ball off the tee every week? And we need to do the same thing as Christians to draw near to Christ, do those basic things. And then you'll find five devotions for each week, just five, which means that if you miss a day, you know, it's Tuesday and you have an upset tummy and you go to bed early, that's okay. You can pick that one back up on Saturday and it'll be all right. And then there's discussion questions and you can discuss those with the Lord or maybe with your spouse or a close friend at the end of the week. So it's pretty low-key. Um, it's out there for you, and I hope that you use that as a tool for your own growth. I'm looking forward to going through it, um, and it's not just because I created it. I'm really excited to intentionally focus on abiding in Christ over the next uh, six or seven weeks. Okay, there we go. We've got that. Hey, let's pray before we get into God's Word. Lord, thank you for this time right now. Lord, your Word is good. You say that it's a spiritual feast for us, that it nourishes us as humans. 
you say that it is uh, sharper than a sword. It's living and active. It's able to bring conviction and separate our actions from our motivations. You say that your word is like a mirror where we learn our identity, where we hear who we are from you, and that we're supposed to walk away remembering what we saw as we peered into your truth. And so, Father, we pray right now that you would do some of that holy work that you say your word does in our midst as we listen. And Lord, this chapter contains some touchy subjects. There's a chance that people in this room and who are hearing this have been hurt by misuse of some of these truths today. We pray for healing. There's a chance that there's been confusion and chaos over these words, which is the opposite reason for why you put them in your word. And so we pray, God, that you would bring order. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us in the places that we're weak in understanding you. Thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I was born in 1980. I'm not telling you that because you should care about when I was born. But in the mid-90s, this crazy thing happened. And the Olympic Committee in the United States decided to allow professionals in a sport to go to the Olympics for that sport. And so in the early 90s, in the Summer Olympics, there was something that was formed called the Dream Team. You guys remember the Dream Team? They were a basketball team. Some of you who are under the age of 20 are like, huh? Uh, Imagine Space Jam in real life, right? Like it was that good, okay? Uh, If you don't know what Space Jam is because you're over 40, I apologize. We're trying to glue multiple generations together, okay? Um, And so this Dream Team was pretty crazy because it was like the the NBA All-Stars were going to go and own every other basketball team around the world, right? It was like everybody was like, this is going to be wild. But there was also this question, can they play together? Can they get along? Because when you have all of these guys who are super talented, fairly aggressive individuals, will they be able to partner together to accomplish the work that a basketball team needs to do? The other question that was there is, will they treat this like a real game, or are they just going to squirrel around and fritter away their opportunities to win? Because sometimes when friends hang out, they do that too. Have you ever invited a friend over to do a project, and then at like 8 p.m., you're like, I guess we should get started, because you've just spent all that time visiting. And so there was this big question, will they be able to get it together to get the job done? And I was watching uh, an interview about this dream team a little while ago, and uh, there was one interview that stood out to me. One of the players, it doesn't matter who, was talking about how at the start of the first game, no one really knew how it was going to go. They'd practiced, they wanted to win, but there were questions out there because some of their best friends were playing for international teams, and they were going to play a really good friend. In fact, there were teammates who were now opposing each other in the Olympics. And they said in the first moments of the first game, one guy who was on one team was defending against his best friend on his home team, and he laid him out. The guy was driving at the lane, and he just planted, and his friend plowed into his shoulder and fell on the ground. And the USA took the ball and then, uh, you know, scored a basket. So in that moment, they all realized that they were there to play that they were going to play basketball together, that the friendships that they had back home didn't matter as much as the work that they were to do on the court, and that they were going to drive to win. And then, if you remember, they did. In fact, it was, cra- it was like a blowout every game. You know, everybody was like, wow, I guess the USA really is the best at basketball after all. And now, that's a big shift in sports, but the point of this is, is that that team chose order 
on their team. And because of that, they became a powerful basketball team. And we as a church family have that same opportunity. Will we choose order on our team to have powerful impact? Will everyone get in the game and play? Will everyone post up when it's time to post up? Will everyone give it their all? Or are we going to be a church that does it our own way and lose some of the impact that we could potentially have? And that's really the heart of this chunk of 1 Corinthians that we're going to read today. So I want you to understand that when you follow God's order in your life, when we follow God's order as a church family, you have powerful impact. And we're talking about an eternal impact, right? Like an, an impact for God's glory and our good in the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to just take my word for it. Let's, uh, let's unpack the word together. And so let's read uh, just 27 short verses together, shall we? Okay. So therefore, the person who speaks another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Okay, I want to pause here. Last week I said I would get into tongues a little bit more this week, and it's just because I'm a glutton for punishment, right? So there's, there's like several controversial issues in this passage in the North American church, and this is issue number one. Now, before we get into this, I just want to say that uh, there's grace here. There's major theological camps, and historically there have been lines of division kind of drawn in the church sand, and people have kind of split over this where we haven't been able to have fellowship, we've distanced ourselves from other brothers and sisters in Christ, and I just, it strikes me as ironic, because the whole point of this passage here is unity, right? Like, that's a huge theme in 1 Corinthians, is unity within the church, and then somehow, we as a church overall, not our church individually, but we as a church overall, have used these texts to create division, and I, I just think that grieves the heart of God, and we don't want to grieve the heart of God in our church family. So whatever your perspective is on this, if you, if you find that you're at lunch at El Capadre, Compadre and you've ordered the same enchiladas, but you're discussing the sermon and you can't get along because of this issue, maybe come together over enchiladas for a little while and, and set this issue aside because it's not as important as the spiritual unity that we have in the family of God. This, that's why I think 1 Corinthians 13 interrupts this whole discussion, because Paul says that love is more important than any of these gifts, and if we make these gifts more important than the bond of peace that we have, the agape love that God has poured out in our hearts and is pushing us to manifest to the world around us, then we're getting it wrong, and we're in disorder, and we're ruining our impact for Christ. Okay, so just let's hold this with humility and grace, no matter where you're at on this. Um, but I, I'd like to talk to the, the issue uh, at hand overall in the Corinthian church before we get into the context. We reviewed this a little bit, but the Corinthian church thought that praying in tongues or having, we might call it ecstatic utterance, but basically speaking in other languages in the church service um, made someone more spiritual. And, and they thought that that was the best part of church. And so when that happened a lot at church, the people who were influential and ran the show thought, man, that is the best church service ever. And Paul is saying, you're, you're missing the mark. Praying in tongues does not make someone a spiritual person. In fact, he says love, the love of Jesus makes someone a spiritual person. And then functioning in the order of the body makes the body spiritually mature. So let's get this right, Corinthian church family. And so their worship gatherings were disordered, and there was this tongues issue happening. Now, 
we're looking through 2,000 years of history at this, and it's a little bit challenging. There's so much in the Bible that's absolutely clear, abundantly clear. There's historical and archaeological evidence backing up what the Word of God says, and in this zone, no outside information to help us. Like, zero outside information to help us, which is challenging because when there's controversy in the text or confusion over the text, we we look for other information to help us navigate it. We look for what other people have said in the past. We look for early evidence for how the church functioned, and it just isn't there. And so what we have is about 150 years of theological argument and then, like, occasionally a theologian who wrote about it and the record still stands, but that's still just someone like you and I trying to come to conclusions through the darkness. And so we're left trying to understand the text. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that there are various kinds of tongues. Now some people take that to mean that just like there are various nations or ethnos, ethnicities around the globe, there are various tongues around the globe. And they take that to be a concrete language that's able to be understood by the people who are from there. So there's like English and French and German, except then it would be like, Phoenician and Greek and, uh, you know, Latin and all, all of these other languages that existed. And we see this sort of thing happen in Acts 2, right? You remember in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples, all of them, in like the form of flaming tongues, which by the way, that had to be really crazy to see, to have everybody see. Uh, then all of a sudden, some of them broke out praying in tongues and praising God and sharing the gospel in tongues. And some of those people were accused of being drunk, but then other of those people were speaking languages and people who were in Jerusalem at the time for the festival were like, you are speaking my language. How, how are you speaking my... In fact, you sound like somebody who grew up on my street. You're speaking it so well. And they're like, I don't speak your language. And they're like, you just did. You told me about Jesus in my language. And, and the, the disciples who were doing that were like, well, that's not me. That's the Lord. And then you know what happened? Those people were like, wow, Jesus must be real. And there was like conviction and belief. And they repented and they were baptized. And there was thousands of people who put their faith in Jesus that day, right? And so there's this uh, tongues that proceeds from there, which is an actual spoken language that's spoken by someone who doesn't speak the language so that the one who's hearing can hear the gospel. And we don't see this happen a lot. I think some of it is that it's not really a useful gift. You know, if I came up here and all of the sudden I am preaching to you in Romanian, are any of you going to understand? No, we're going to need a translator, right? Like maybe somebody is like, I speak some Romanian, right? But you probably are not fluent in Romanian. And so if that happened, I would need a translator. So we live in an area where there's not a lot of linguistic diversity. And so it doesn't occur very much. But there are testimonies, even now, of places on the fringe of missions where missionaries are out serving in foreign lands and they're trying to reach people for the gospel and they're praying that the gospel would be shared and they show up and there's a language barrier and all of a the sudden there's this moment where they sp- think that they're speaking their best version of their ability to speak to them but they're actually speaking with God's best version to speak to them in their mother tongue. And then there's a transformation in that area spiritually because the Spirit of God has communicated the truth of God in a compelling way to those people. That's really awesome, isn't it? And, and we can praise God for that. And I, I think it's probably one of the most wild things that I can have uh, in my imagination happening, that God would use that in that way. And I don't know if any of you have been on short-term mission trips before or have been overseas serving the Lord, um, even in business, and you've sensed this language barrier holding you back. 
It's very, very challenging because you're trying to communicate truths that matter to you deeply, but you're aware that there's this massive gap, and the Holy Spirit covered that gap. But then beyond that, there's this other language right here in this chapter that makes it very, this chapter and the previous chapters, that makes it very difficult to say that that's the only kind of tongues that's being talked about here. Now, there are arguments that diffuse this and kind of take it down to where only that utterance that is understandable in a human language, sometimes as a translator, is being spoken of. But I I personally find those arguments lacking with soundness compared to the rest of the biblical text. Now, some people, they really like these arguments, and they say, therefore, the only kind of tongues that is possible here are those tongues that are used in missions to share the gospel. But there's evidence here in the text. So Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, then I am built up in my faith, but you are confused because you don't understand the heavenly language that I'm speaking. So Paul, I think, is talking about a second form of tongues, not just tongues for missions, but a prayer language, you might call it, or, or a heavenly language between you and God. In fact, Paul says that when that happens, your spirit is nourished, but your mind doesn't know what's happening. And, and I have friends who've evidenced this gift, and they say, that's exactly what it is. I, I don't know why. I'll be in worship. I'll, I'll be in my car, and I'll, I'll have this moment where I just start speaking something that I don't understand, but my spirit is deeply built up and encouraged, and I'm strengthened, and God uses that to help me stand firm in my faith. Wow. I mean, that's, that's kind of cool. In, in fact, I had a friend share a testimony with me recently where he had a, a friend who was staunchly in the camp of those sorts of tongues are not from God, that there is no secret heaven prayer language, that you guys have formed some sort of spiritual cult that isn't actually about Jesus, but your own desire to feel special. And he was, I mean, he was antagonistic about that. And then one day, this dude is driving down the road, minding his own business, and all of a sudden... His mouth starts doing this really weird thing, and his mind doesn't understand it, but his spirit is strengthened, and he doesn't know what to do about it. He doesn't have any friends he can tell about it, but he had his old coworker, who said, I don't know if you've got that right, man, and so he wrote him a letter and just said, I, I have to tell you about this really strange thing that happened to me, and I, I don't understand it, but I think maybe all those years you were telling me to guard against condemnation that you were right because it happened to me. Doesn't that seem like how the Lord works? I mean, I have friends who are like, Lord, I will serve you anywhere but in California. (laughs) Where are they pastoring now? (laughs) Yeah, isn't that funny? God, God is like, oh, I see your barrier and I bring the Holy Spirit steamroller in love. How do you like me now, right? Like, and And the cool thing is there's joy there, right? And it changes that person's perspective and they realize I was limiting God and saying that he can't do this thing that he actually says he can do and so I'm just going to go ahead and trust him in that. So I think that the text is evidencing these two forms of things. And we have to recognize that as we interpret, we come with a cultural load of understanding. And we don't like being out of control as a culture. We really like being in control as a culture, right? We are kind of control freaks in America. I mean, think about how important the TV remote is. And how upset are you when you can't find the TV remote? And what is that thing for? 
control, right? How upset with you are you when the internet goes down and you've cycled the modem off and on three times and you're on the phone with customer service and you're, it's not working well? Do you know what's bothering you? You're not in control. It's frustrating. Sure, you need to send the email, but if you step back and thought about it, it probably doesn't have to go out right away. And if you explain to the person who was getting the email, the power was out and the internet was down or whatever, they're going to understand because that's not under your control. And so you're having a hard time with that. And so this idea of this dynamic spiritual utterance that you don't control is a little bit off-putting for most of us. But the reality is, is that we know that as people who want to know God better, you need to give God what? control, right? And so maybe we need to start in this place where we say, it's not about my order, but your order. It's not about my will, but your will. And so, Lord, I want whatever gifts that you're interested and willing to give me, but you say in your word that especially I should desire gifts that build up others. And so if you want me to have that weird thing happen that I don't understand, I'm okay with it, but I would much rather do something that I understand and makes an impact in others. But I would urge you, no matter where you're at, please stay away from condemning others in their use of spiritual gifts. It's just so dangerous and so hurtful. I mean, can you imagine someone telling you that your private time with Jesus is filled with the devil and that you're not following Jesus, but that you're following Satan? Can you imagine how hurtful that is? It'd be very challenging. In fact, I've found that even when I discover a brother or sister in error, that the best thing to do is to lead them to the truth in love, not to abuse them for my own sense of comfort over their error. And so when we correct, we correct in love. Because it's possible that we get confused, right? Like, how many of you believe the wrong thing about a Bible verse? Me too. Because it's hard to understand sometimes. And sometimes we understand in our own way instead of in God's way. And so with this issue, I would just encourage you to be gracious with others and seek what the Lord would have for you so that you can be as fruitful as he desires you to be. So let's keep moving forward. Uh, if you have questions about that, by the way, feel free to email me or call me or contact one of the elders. We don't want you to be lost or upset in these things. Uh, so in verse 15, Paul says, um, What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't know what you are saying? For you may be very well, you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you, Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. So Paul's saying one sentence that is understandable is better than millions upon millions of words spoken in a tongue that nobody understands. He's saying that the church needs to be ordered and it needs to be ordered specifically around building each other up in everything that we do when we gather as a church family. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. 
Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign not for believers, but unbelievers. While prophecy, not for unbelievers, is for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay, so here's, this is really confusing, at least for most people. Because Paul just said, I would rather not speak in tongues at church because it's going to confuse outsiders who don't understand. And then all of a sudden, he's got this sentence happening where he's like, but those tongues are for outsiders who don't understand them. And prophecy is for insiders, people who understand church, so that they can understand more. Do you think that Paul is flip-flopping? Is he like Al Gore in a presidential campaign? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that that is his intent. By the way, I'm not trying to say I was anti-Al Gore. It was just this cultural phenomenon that you might remember very well. So, uh, seriously, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. So let's, let's roll back just a little bit to verse 21. It says, it is written in the law. Now, Paul is not commending these people to go back to the Old Testament law. He's using an Old Testament example to try and clarify the principle that he's talking about. And this is this prophecy from Isaiah. And he's saying, my very own people, my very own people who should know me by name, who should be walking with me, they're not listening to me. Therefore, I'm sending discipline to them in the form of judgment on my people Israel. And what's going to happen is a foreign nation is going to come and take them over, and I am going to use that language that they don't understand to convict them, to convict them that they have not been following me and listening to me. I'm going to put them in captivity, and I'm going to pull away from them so that they might seek me even more. And so it's talking about being locked in bondage via that tongue. It's talked about discipline in that tongue. And so Paul is not saying the tongues help the outsider understand. He's literally saying tongues make insiders into outsiders. Tongues make people who come to church and are seeking Jesus, they're like, I don't know what's happening in this place. And I don't know why it's happening in this way. It seems chaotic and disorder, and I'm not taking anything from this. But he's saying prophecy. Prophecy makes outsiders into insiders. See, the gift of prophecy is about taking the Word of God and causing it to come to bear on the hearts of the people who are listening. It's not just teaching it. It's not just unpacking word studies and phrases. It's not just educating you about what the Word says. It's talking to you about how God's truth impacts the way you think, the way you understand yourself, the way you understand the people around you, and how you live your life. It's taking the word and making application for it. See, God doesn't want you guys just to be spiritual nerds. He wants you to be spiritual geniuses. When we talk about IQ, there's two things that go together. There's a fund of knowledge. Imagine this bank in your head of all the things that you know. You want that bank account to be as big as possible, right? It's good to know a lot of things about a lot of things. What happens when you run into the edge of your knowledge in a project that you're working on? You get kind of stuck, right? And you need to ask for help. You need to get more information because you can't do what you don't know. So you need a big bank of knowledge. But the other end of IQ is functional ability with that knowledge. The ability to do something with that knowledge that is productive and good. So I remember uh, learning mechanical principles growing up. I knew how threads worked on a bolt. I understood that. But you know what I was really bad at? cross-threading bolts. So I'd be working on a project, and I'd get what I thought was the bolt to start, and then it would get stuck, and you know what I did? I just wrenched harder. Anybody know what that does? 
Yeah, it's bad news, right? Like, you're going to be tapping that out. You're going to be putting new threads in there. And if you're really unlucky, you're also going to break the bolt off in there, which means you're going to be drilling it out and then tapping it out. And something that should have moved the project forward in about 10 seconds is going to be frustrating you in about 10 hours. So without the functional skill to apply the knowledge, things go wrong. And often what happens in church is we're very educated. We have a huge fund of knowledge spiritually, but we have very little skill in causing that to work out in our lives. And that's where the gift of prophecy comes in because it applies that knowledge to you and the way that you live. And often when that happens, there's aha moments. There's conviction moments where you're like, oh, I guess I've been doing that wrong. There's repentance, where you turn from things that have been giving you false sense of life and happiness instead of following the living God. And there's transformation in your life. It's that moment when you think later in the week, I just, that one sentence is really sticking with me. I wish the pastor didn't say that because now I have to quit doing this thing that I love doing. Because God is calling me to learn to love something that I'll love even more than that. And so it's this applicational teaching of God's word. And so Paul's saying, let's prophesy so that people who are captive to sin can be set free, and those who are free can run even more freely. So it's not that Paul's reversing himself, it's that we don't, we didn't understand maybe the Old Testament law there and what was happening in the context and how it worked out in the next verse. Because it'd be really weird for Paul to just suddenly contradict himself. I mean, he seems like such a spiritual genius, and then all of a sudden he's like doubling back and completely eliminating the sentences that he just said before that. By the way, the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't contradict itself. It's this really amazing fact about this book that God has given us. All right, we'll move forward on to verse 23. If therefore the whole church assembles together, and all are speaking in other tongues, and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? They will. And by the way, it's hard enough to convince people sometimes that as Christ followers, we're not out of our minds, isn't it? They don't need extra evidence. They really don't. And so let's not give it to them. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. How does that work? Well, I remember before I was a Christian, one of the things that God started to do is he was sending his workers in to get me ready for harvesting. And so I was hanging out at my college on the quad, and this group of weird people was also there at 6.30 in the morning. I was there at 6.30 in the morning because it saved me 97 minutes on my commute, which was very valuable. I could do more homework then and get more sleep then. But they were there because they wanted to pray together. What was that all about? Who gets out of bed early to pray with someone that they don't really know? It had me scratching my head. And they would greet me every morning, and they got to know my name. And then eventually one of them came up in this very sweet voice and just said, Chris, I want you to know that we're praying for you, and God loves you. And I thought, that's very nice. Now, I'm going to go back to multivariable calculus, please, right? And so, like, that was nice. And then later, they, they looked at me and they said, you look like something's troubling you can we pray with you right now? And I was like, okay, I guess so. And then they prayed with me. And, and then they started asking me questions about my spiritual life. And they were never rude, 
but they ask me questions that I couldn't answer. Like, what are you going to do with the things that are in your life that don't please God? Because they knew that I knew what sin was. They just knew that I didn't know the Savior, too. And they just sort of set that token on me, and they left it there. And I didn't know how to answer. But they were really, really kind and loving about it. They weren't like, Chris, you are a dirty sinner. You are going to burn in hell. They just sort of loved me and left God's truth right there in my lap for me to wrestle with. And then I transferred schools. And I went to this Baptist school. And I was hanging out with all of these believers. And you know what I was seeing? They all say the same thing, like all the time. And there's this godly love in their life. And there's this patience and this grace and this consistency. And eventually I was like, I don't think they're the crazy ones. I think maybe I'm the crazy one. And that I need to understand what they have. And God used the consistency of their message and the prophetic words, right? The truth of God that came to bear on my heart to witness to me. And some of you are involved in that very same thing. You're teaching those around you that you're not out of your mind for following Jesus. In fact, you're the most sane person that they know when it comes down to it. All right, moving on. We haven't even gotten to the sermon yet, guys. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. Wow, how great would that be? What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. What's it all to be done for? Building up. Okay, good. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. Okay, so again, this is this probably the speaking in other languages thing, right? If anyone speaks in another tongue. Earlier, Paul says, if I pray in another tongue, it's not profitable. That's for my time with God. But here he's saying, if anyone speaks in another tongue. I just want you to pause and recognize that God uses different words in his word on purpose to describe what he means. And sometimes what happens is we take our little minds and we say, you know what? God's using different words so the literature isn't boring. Guys, the literature's not boring. God doesn't need a thesaurus to make his word more powerful for you. He meant what he said. Praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. Here, if anyone speaks in another tongue, there should be a translator. So I've been uh, in places where there's like multinational church gatherings, and there's this really cool thing that they've done with technology. You go to the back, and you get a headset that is for your native language, and they give it to you, and you put it on, and then there's someone in a hidden room who's translating what's happening on stage so that you have an interpreter and can praise God with those people. It's really powerful and really helpful in a church where there's multiple languages. It helps them all have unity together, and it's this unique experience where all of these people from all across the globe are worshiping the same God together, and they all have the same understanding. And it's powerful because there's an interpreter present. But if there is no interpreter, then that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Then feel free to have that tongue language then going on. Two or three prophets should speak, and others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. So in the Corinthian church, it wasn't big like this. And I know for some of us, this doesn't feel like big church. But around the world, a church like this is gigantic. In fact, if you were to find a pastor and invite him here from another nation that's a developing nation, they would be like, wow, 
You guys have walls, a roof, electricity, bathrooms. I could have 3,000 people in your church on Sunday. And we're like, hang on, buddy. Fire code is 299. Fire code? I don't understand. Holy Spirit fire? What are you talking about? You know, they just they look at this facility and they're like, wow, that's amazing. But their gathering was small, maybe 20 to 30 people. And they probably didn't have a full-time pastor who was teaching every week. And so what would happen is that somebody would get up and say, hey, I have something to share, uh, truth about God. And so they would prophesy. They would bring the truth of God to bear on the hearts of the people. And then maybe somebody else in the room would say, I also have a truth of God. But because the Corinthian church was all about self-importance, they were interrupting each other and tripping over themselves to prove themselves to be more effective. So imagine if in the middle of church, Flint over here interrupts and he says, Chris, you're not, it won't happen, that's right. Chris, I have a better word than you have and I'd like you to take a seat. And then three minutes in, Marcus is like, Flint, I love you, brother, but this is weak sauce. The Lord gave me some truth this week that is going to cause your eyeballs to glow all month with his power, right? And then all the, you know, there's just this cacophony of outdoing one another, not in love and good deeds, but in declaring that you are the best teacher around. And so instead of building up the church in love, it's one-upmanship and showmanship in pride. And it's actually tearing everyone down, including the ones doing it. And so Paul's saying, don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. And he says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. Wait, I got ahead of myself. We're on verse 31 all of a sudden. That's not where we're at. There we go. We're actually here. Uh, And so uh, there's this evaluating that needs to happen and this listening. And then if you're not the one speaking, you should quietly listen and not interrupt. For You can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged or built up. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets since God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Or maybe your translation says God is not a God of chaos but of order. Now this spirit is subject to the prophets thing. It's literally saying the prophets should self-regulate with each other. They should be administrated with one another and organized. What it's not saying is that somebody can get up front and say something that's contrary to the word of God and then somebody can say, hey, I think that was a lie and then they're like, I'm sorry, brother. The spirit of the prophet is subject to itself and you have no place to judge if what I'm saying is true. That's not what's going on. Paul's literally saying, those of you who have the gift of prophecy, work together so that it works out for everyone. You should subject each other to yourselves. You should submit and work together. And the prophet's spirits are subject. I'm behind myself. Guys, I I had coffee today. I don't know know what's happening. I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, and here it is. It's right there, but I need to find it in my notes. There we go. I'm not turning the pages as fast as my tongue is moving through them. Uh, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches For they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law also says. Wow! You know, sometimes I wish that I could do surgery on God's word so that it's easier for me to tell you about. This is one of these verses that I want to go Thomas Jefferson about and just kind of do some surgery. You guys know that Thomas Jefferson, he just cut all the miracles out of the Gospels. He's like, no, that's a lie. Jesus didn't raise anybody from the dead, guys. Let's just get that out of here. I don't understand that junk. Let's back up a little bit here. 
What was the principle of the law that Paul just used just before this? He says in verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. Do you remember in Genesis 1, the beginning, it said that God was hovering over the waters, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and behold, the waters were formless and void. And what it actually really means, it's, it's to, tohu vabohu, right? It's like holy tofu, and it's, it's a mess. It's saying that, that the uncreation was a mess. It was dark, and it was a mess. It was like a kindergartner's underbed space, right? There's no order, there's no cleanness, there's no container. It's just wild in there. And it's saying that God creates order, not chaos. Therefore, I want the women in church to act in this specific way, according to the character of God. Now, we also need to back up into the book of Corinthians a little bit, because the thing that this appears to be saying, it can't be saying. Or again, we have this flip-flopping situation happening. Do you remember just a few passages ago where it said, I want the women to pray and prophesy with head coverings, and I want the men to pray and prophesy without head coverings. So it's kind of hard to pray and prophesy silently in front of the church. And can you imagine if the sermon was a Charlie Chaplin? What did, what did I just do? You know, it's like interpretive dance. You need me to explain. God is big, and compared to him, you're small. So humble yourselves before him. Right? Like that, you need words to understand. Is Paul telling them to use words two chapters ago and here saying, no words for you? That doesn't make any sense. This is talking about the exercise of the gift of prophecy. Now, when you have a small group, there's usually a lot more interaction in the teaching, right? And so there was this thing that was happening. And a husband would get up and he would start to preach. And then maybe his wife might say something like, now, John, I, I don't think you're loving your wife like Christ loves the church. What happened to that guy's ability to preach the truth in that moment? Not, not so good, right? Like, oh, this plane's going down. <laughs> this isn't a pretty situation. We're having a, a spat in the midst of a message. And so it's, it's not saying, women, you, you have no place in church. It's saying in the, in the midst of teaching, uh, wives, hold, hold on to that thought. You know, if you feel like the guy who's teaching or the guy who's sitting next to you isn't living according to the word, let's talk about that privately with them at home. In fact, the very next verse says that. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this, this thing that's happening, it's not talking about speaking like this. The language lends itself to an understanding of a little bit of an argument. So it's saying, hey, if you, if you have this tension, you're about to have a tense conversation with the one you love, instead of having that at church, please have that discussion in a private way. Don't have that discussion right now. And remember, Paul just said a few chapters ago, women are to pray in church. Women are to prophesy in church. So it's not contradicting that. This is about an orderly time of teaching, and it's about an orderly household. 
What does it do when your spouse picks a fight with you in public? It hurts in a really special way, doesn't it? There's an incredible amount of embarrassment and shame. What happens when your spouse tactfully approaches you in private and shares about their needs that they would like you to meet? Wow, they have a chance to love you and you have a chance to build them up. And so Paul is saying, hey, let's keep marriage sacred and holy and let's keep teaching time in church marriage and holy. Uh, teaching time in church safe and holy and let's build each other up in those good boundaries or did the word of god originate from you or did it come to you only if anyone thinks he is a prophet or is spiritual he could should recognize what i write to you is the lord's command and if anyone ignores this he will be ignored so then my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues but everything is to be done decently and in order. Okay, that was all 27 verses. So I want to get us back to the main point of this message. When you follow God's order, you have powerful impact. When you follow God's order, you have powerful impact. Now, we don't have any of these problems happening in our church family, right? So in one way, if I were to deliver a sermon and just tell you what it meant to the Corinthian church, we could all increase that fund of knowledge, but we wouldn't be building that spiritual skill, and we'd just be becoming bigger Bible nerds, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with Bible nerds. They're some of the best people on earth, but God wants you to be a spiritual genius, not just a Bible nerd. So he wants you to have impact from his word in your life, and he wants you to know how to impact other people through ordering your life around his truth. And so there's this key thing that you need to understand, that God is a God of order, and he wants to create order in your life surrounding who he is and how he's gifted you to function. And he wants to create order in our church around those same things. You know, it's a really good thing that I don't lead worship. I I don't play instruments, like at all. I have an okay sense of rhythm, but sometimes I get lost in the beat and the words get in the way of the beat, and so I can't keep rhythm really well on my own. I can keep rhythm if somebody's leading me in rhythm, but I can't make rhythm for other people. It doesn't work. And, and then sometimes I'm a little pitchy. You know, it just, it's not the most beautiful thing. Sometimes I'm, I'm more a Canadian goose than a Frank Sinatra, you know? <laughs> And, and, and so this isn't, this isn't my thing, but I love to worship, and I love it when people who can lead worship lead worship. And so it's a good thing that we have order in the church. It allows all of us to be built up. And so we want to pursue God's order in our life. God's going to take the chaos that we sometimes feel, and he's going to create order in that. That's a really good principle to know. Sometimes does life feel out of control, feel a little crazy? You, you could just call to the God of order. God, my life feels a little out of control, a little crazy right now. I need you to set me up with an understanding about how this is all supposed to work because I'm in over my head. And you know what you can do? You can count on him to create order in your chaos. And that's a really cool thing. And God wants to create order in our church family. And so he has gifted his church to be fruitful in doing good. We just talked about how God is a God of order and creation, but in your recreation, God created order as well. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 if you want. I hope you put your yellow post-it note there before the sermon like I did. It's helpful in getting there more quickly. If you're borrowing a a Bible or you grab one of our black Bibles for your very own, it's on page 1036. If you brought your own Bible, you can do it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. 
So it's talking about getting eternal life by faith. But then there's an order in this eternal life. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so God, in his order in your recreation, has created you to be able to do good works with the gifts that he has given you to do. And so right off the bat, you know that your spiritual gift is to do what? Good works. God has planned good things for you to do, and he wants you to exercise your gifts for his glory. The next thing that we need to understand is that chaotic church gatherings impede the impact. Okay, so we have a really organized, you know, 75 to 90 minutes of church in here. But there are things that we can do that get in the way of that impact happening. We can create chaos in our midst. And we're going to unpack a little, bit those, a little bit of that in a little bit, but we just need to recognize that, that God wants this church gathering ordered and well-ordered so that it has the best impact possible. And how do we do that? We work together. When a church works together, it creates a wealth of positive impact. So let's talk about the order of our church service. Can you imagine if we put the intercessors in charge of greeting at the door? How would that go? The stranger is walking in, and this very lovely man or woman is walking up and saying, I can see you have a great weight on your shoulder. And I am going to appeal to the God of heaven who moves mountains to lift this weight off of you. And that dude is just like, I just want a cup of coffee and a nice seat, right? And so they're overwhelmed at the door. So we have like hospitality at the door to welcome people and to set this tenor of love and safety in the room, right? And so we create this order in our family and we work together. You know what's cool is that we don't just have a greeting team, we have a greeting church. You all are really good at welcoming each other into church and welcoming guests into our church family. That's a part of the order of our church. How about when we work together in singing? Have you noticed that we close the doors at the beginning of the church service? Because some of us, we're really, we're really enjoying that fellowship in there still, and we run on beach time, and so church starts at 10.07 for us. That's okay for you, right? But we close that door because in this room, we have this order of worship happening, and when your disordered conversations compared to the order of worship come in, it eliminates the impact of this room. And I've seen it before. The people at the back of the room keep doing this. And they just wish that they could enter into worship because we have this disorder happening. And so we close the door. But then once we're in here, we're focused on worshiping together. And it's really powerful when we all stand up and sing together. It's really impactful when some of us are moved by the Spirit and we start singing more passionately, more fervently. The people around us follow that into that order. That's part of the job of the worship team, right? To genuinely worship, to lead us deeper in connecting with God. We have this order happening. And then we have this greeting time. We go back to hospitality and refreshing again. We have a little bit of a transition in the service. But what happens? What happens if you all want to talk for 17 minutes? We have disorder then. And the impact of our church gathering is eliminated. It's part of why it's helpful when you all get in your seats after those lights flash, right? So that it says that what we're about to do is important. It actually elevates the word of God because you're saying my talking is less important than God's talking to me here. You see, so we have this impact. And then there's this really cool thing that happens in our church sometimes where after the service, you are all amazed by what God revealed to you and you stand around and you talk about the goodness of Jesus. And some of you go out to lunch and you're still talking about the goodness of Jesus. And all of you in your testimony, in your orderliness together, you have greater impact. And then all of a sudden the church, the table next door to you is like, 
what are you all excited about? And you're like, well, what Jesus did at our church this morning. And they're like, You know, and they get interested in Jesus because you are interested in Jesus together because you have this ordered life around Christ and you have greater impact together. And so when we work together, there's this wealth of positive impact. It's this really effective thing going on as the church family orders itself around Jesus' work in their midst. God desires that everything in our gathering be done for building each other up. So when you come to church... You can count on being built up, but you can also count on the fact that God wants you to build others up. This doesn't mean that we become a church that is unhelpable. I'm here to impact others. You cannot waste your time impacting me. I am super Christian. I need nothing from anyone at any time because I am the best. It's not about that at all. It's about me greeting you in love and receiving your greeting in love. It's about me willing to receive prayer for the things going on in my life and being willing to pray for you and the things going on in your life. It's about me being able to be honest and transparent before God and his word and encouraging you to do the same thing because we're all being built up together. This is how family's supposed to work, right? When a family is turned towards itself and everybody's fighting for what they want, how does Saturday afternoon go? It's really poor, right? I've had buying ice cream at the store turn into a knockdown, drag-out fight with my children before, right? And instead of us going, what do you want, and all enjoying the goodness of ice cream, instead we're fighting over, you know, rainbow sherbet, Rocky Road, and mint chocolate chip, and everybody's getting black eyes, and nobody's getting ice cream. The, the same thing, I, I'm not punching my kids, okay? Just so we're clear, and don't punch my kids in the face, especially over ice cream. But the point is, is that if we all become self-focused, we start vying for attention and everybody gets torn down. But if all, we all become focused and building each other up, then everyone is deeply satisfied because God is so satisfying and we're manifesting the goodness of God to each other. Paul wants us to understand that you create order when you prefer and exercise gifts and skills that manifest God's truth, grace, and love. Now, this is vitally important. It's not just about preferring these things. It's also about exercising these things. I want you to think about this. If everyone in the church served the way you served, give the way you gave, pray the way you pray, fellowship the way you fellowship, would the church be weaker or stronger? You have to answer that for yourself. Don't answer for me, please, Renee. I don't appreciate that. <laughs> and I don't think that's true about you, sister, just so you know. Because it takes all of us to make a strong church. Paul isn't just interested in strong prophecy happening from the front. He's interested in everybody in Corinth using their spiritual gifts to the best of the ability that God has given them. And then he says, your church will be fruitful. The same thing is true, true for us. It's so easy for us to assume that other people are going to do the work of the church. And then you know what happens? Nobody does the work of the church. Have you ever wondered why the roadside is so dirty? It's because we all look at it and go, who's going to pick that up? Not me. Then nobody picks it up. The same thing happens in our church family. Who's going to do that? Well, if you're asking the question, there's a really good chance that God is saying, you's going to do that. Okay? <laughs> he is from New Jersey and everywhere else as well, so he can say that. You maintain order when you have humility and handle personal and private matters by personal and private means. You maintain order in the church when you maintain humility in yourself, when you have humility and you handle personal and private matters by personal and private means. Okay, so we want to be humble in the church. It's not about me. It's about God. 
When I was thinking about this passage, the Lord brought up a song that I learned early in my faith, and the, and the, and the chorus goes, um, it's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me, that you should do things my way, for you alone are God, and I surrender to your will. And I thought, wow, how awesome is it when the whole church confesses that on Sunday morning and Monday morning and Tuesday afternoon and everywhere we go. It makes it so clear what we're all about. And so we need to be humble. But then also, sometimes there's private matters that you need to handle. You know, you, you, you took Tupperware to your friend Francine's house, and it's been three and a half weeks, and you really want it back. Well, when you remember in the middle of church, probably don't go over and ask Francine for it right away. Maybe talk about it after church quietly. You know, don't interrupt the worship gathering for that. Uh, make sure that you're ready to handle personal and private things in personal and private ways. You, know, you, you have something going wrong and, and, and there's a problem in your neighborhood and, and you know other Christians in the church who think it's a problem too. Don't have a cluster in the foyer and crab and gossip about the neighbor whose dog is pooping over everyone's lawn. Like that, that doesn't build up the church. These, these things happen, but we want to handle that privately and, and in love and, and not make it a public affair because our public love affair is with Jesus not with our disagreements or the things that we're upset about. And so we want to handle these things personally and privately. That's what that whole thing, remember that thing with like the husbands and the wives and the women should be, that was, that was about private things being handled private. It was about humility and not needing to elevate yourself in the moment, but letting God work things out graciously. And then if you want to have impact, pursue love and build each other up. And th this is really it. You, you want to know what it takes to have spiritual impact in the world. Pursue love and build each other up. God's going to give you the gifts. He's going to create the opportunities. He's going to train you in the skills that you need. Just ask. You want to make an impact? Learn to love other people like Jesus did. And learn to build people up. Everywhere you go, there's something tearing someone down. Most people have an angry, nagging voice in their head telling them how bad they are. But if you become a person like Jesus who elevates others to the place that God created them to be elevated, holy cow, are you going to make a difference in the world around you? I mean, just look at how Jesus lived and loved. The only people who had a hard time with him were the people who were more proud than they ought to be. Everybody else felt constantly lifted up by Jesus. They wanted to hang out with him because he helped them know who they were in God's eyes and who they could be if they had faith in him. And such a powerful way to live. Paul is trying to wake the Corinthians up to the fact that it's not about them being special. It's about them reminding other people how special God is and how special each person that they know is around them. Remember that dream team? They played together not to show how awesome they were. They played together to show them how, everyone how awesome the team was, how awesome what they had received was, and they won, and they won big. We can do the same thing. If we all become about this, if we all become about the love of Jesus, if we all become about building each other up, well, that sounds like the type of church that is built at the gates of hell and that no one can stop to me. And I, I'm really interested in being a part of that church family. Are you? But we don't find it, we build it. We don't discover it, it's grown in our midst as we're faithful to the gifts and calling that we have in Christ. So you ready to be faithful? You ready to do it his way? Are you ready to listen for his order? Me too. Let's ask him to create it in our midst. Father, you've gifted each of us in ways